This is the Mentor Shift Podcast, coming out every second Thursday with Mickey Fahair. Hey men, welcome to Mentor Shift. If you're here, you're probably like me. Sometimes you feel like you carry the entire world on your shoulders and it's heavy and you want to get together with some fellow men and listen to their inspirational stories and be inspired and inspire others. So welcome, you've come to the right place. I want to start by asking you two things. If you like what we do, first of all, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform all you have to do is one click and you will get all of our episodes as they come out secondly give us a rating ratings are hugely important for us they get us more listeners please give us two minutes one minute and just give us a good rating and thirdly if you want to give us Uh, your appreciation, you could go to our sponsor's website. Our sponsor is MindsetMaps.com. So www.MindsetMaps.com and do your Mindset Map inventory. It's a free tool and it's going to give you an idea of whether your mindset is actually supportive and aligned um, regarding important life and business goals that you have set out for yourself. Perhaps you assume that that's always like that, but I'm telling you it's not. If you haven't done it, try it, get out of your autopilot and take charge of your mindset. Thanks for being here. And now let's get to the episode. Please join me in welcoming Johnny Marriott. Welcome, John. Thanks for accepting the invitation. Thanks for having me here, Mickey. Yeah, it's an it's an honor to have you. Um, I want to read a little bit of your bio for for the listeners. So, so Johnny Marriott is one of Canada's and the world's premier professional wildlife and nature photographers with images published worldwide by the National Geographic, BBC Wildlife, Canadian Geographic, Maclean's Reader's Digest. He's also a Canon ambassador and an associate fellow with the International League of Conservation Photographers um, and formerly contributing editor to the Outdoor Photography Canada magazine. You you also... uh, are a host of the popular web series Exposed. You have produced six table books and one guidebook. And um, you're also the owner and operator of the Canadian Wildlife Photography Tours. So um, this is featuring wildlife photo adventures, workshops and expeditions um, to out-of-the-way Canadian uh, locales. So... This is really, really very exciting. And, you know, the, the way I wanted to start is I have been doing some research with Robert B. Dill's uh, internationally renowned uh, personal development and, and, and leadership guru. And, you know, one of the things that we've found is that people, entrepreneurs especially, those who care for profit and purpose, and maybe I should have said purpose and profit, so both of those things, they have something what we call the circle of success. So there are certain factors in their life 
that seem to show up every time we talk to somebody uh, who kind of meets this criteria. And interestingly, the, the circle of success starts with the, a connect, connection to passion. So people who are you know, successful in pursuing a higher purpose in life, so they kind of care for the environment and others, and yet also you know, manage to build something that's successful for themselves. So there's both of those things. It all starts with a connection to passion. And you have certainly seemed to have built a, a, a career out of your passion. So I wanted to open with a question, how did you do this? How did it all start? <laughs> Great question, Mickey. So, um, you know, as a little tiny kid, there were two things that I was extremely passionate about. One was the NHL. I wanted to become an NHL star. I was not very good at hockey, so that was kind of out of the way pretty quickly. The other one was animals, um, where everybody else, all the other little boys were playing with little toy trucks and cars and stuff. I was playing with little toy animals and would set up my whole safari on the fireplace mantle. And, and uh, you know, it was a, an infatuation very early on with, with wild animals, everything from bears to lions. And I remember as a kid, for me, the highlight, the, you know, the memory that sticks out the most to me was my fifth birthday. And my dad coming and getting me out of bed in the dark and putting me in the car. And I realized that he was taking me to finally go fishing with him up to his fishing hole, which was a, a place he had to hike into in the mountains in interior British Columbia, Canada. Very wild. You know, we had to drive about an hour up through the mountains in the woods. We saw two black bears along the way. Um, it was just really quite magnificent. And then we hiked down and I still remember going through this dew-filled old logging road and branches hanging all over the place and moose tracks and me thinking this, oh my gosh, this is the most magical world I could possibly imagine. And uh, and I was hooked on the outdoors at that moment. And it has never really gone away from me. And so as I got older and I went to university and I, I kind of lost track of things for a little while to, to give you an idea, I went to university on a math scholarship. Um, both my parents were math teachers, and I thought, well, you know, I'm good at math. That's what I'm going to go do. I'm going to go be an actuary and go sit at a desk. And, you know, I got a year and a half into that in university and just went, what the heck am I doing? Like, I, I have absolutely no desire to actually do this. And I walked over to the main administration building at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, B.C., and I said to them, I've got to switch my major. Like, I, I hate what I'm doing. And I don't know what I want to do. And they, they handed me this big book and they said, well, start going through this. Here's all the different things you can switch to. And as I'm going through, flipping through, I come to one that's forestry and it's got a wildlife department. And I go, oh my gosh, this is it. This is what I've been wanting to do. And so I switched right away and uh, it wasn't quite that easy. It still didn't, uh, didn't quite click for me at the time because forestry in British Columbia has been very, very... Uh, oriented towards logging, um, towards harvesting, going and cutting down the big trees and and not necessarily doing much good for wildlife. So I actually was going to quit university altogether and uh, had a very fortuitous circumstance where I had a professor that knew what my passion was with wildlife and said, you can't quit. I'm going to find something for you. And over Christmas break in 1991, uh, he, so this is 30 years ago now, uh, he phoned me over Christmas break, actually on Christmas Eve, and said, I found something for you. He said, 
you know those wildlife textbooks that you loved from those professors down in California? He said, how would you like to go to university down there? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, they're, they're opening up a one-person contest to do an exchange with the University of California. And he said, you've got to get you, you got to write an essay. He said, I'll take care of all the references and everything. Problem is, is it's due Boxing Day. <laughs> so you're going to have to write a big essay tomorrow on Christmas Day. And so my dad and I sat down and we wrote this big essay and I ended up winning the competition. And I went to the University of California, Berkeley for almost two full years and did all these amazing wildlife courses. And that's really what springboarded me then into a job with Parks Canada in Banff National Park. And in my first year working there, I had three amateur photographers around me that were out taking pictures all the time. And I just got absolutely hooked on it. I had, I had photographed a bit as a little kid. When I was six years old, I'd gotten a camera for my birthday. And I'd gone out and taken all these little photos of tiny little black dots off in the distance that was a bear and a moose and that kind of thing. But working for Parks Canada got me just completely into the passion again. And within five years of that, I had transformed my entire career and had started a photography business and started putting all my efforts into what was my passion. Uh, and that is, is wildlife. And it has continued to this day. So I'm now very lucky to be able to say that I've been a full-time professional for the last 21 years. Congratulations. Love loved the story. So, so yeah, it's interesting because I was reading the, the bio and I, I saw that you mentioned that you actually started taking uh, photos at the age of six. But it sounds like the, your, your passion was actually about wildlife, right? So that, that was the main thing. And so photography was something that, you know, kind of connected to that. But it wasn't something that lasted through all your childhood. So, so you, you didn't actually take photos when you were a teenager. Is that, is that right? Yeah, there was a period, probably six or seven years, where I didn't take photographs. And it wasn't until I moved to Banff at the age of 20 um, that it really started kicking in again and, and realizing, geez, that's, I want to start taking pictures again. I want to be out there finding wildlife. You know, maybe it's a dumb question because everybody thinks that they know what's beautiful about wildlife, but, but I'm still curious, like, what is it about wildlife that hooked you, you think, as a child? So what was it that it gave you? I think uh, a couple of things, you know, there's a, a sense of wildness that you don't get. You know, I grew up in a, a fairly small town with a lot of woods around and And I used to go out as a nine and 10 year old and I'd hide out in the bush and build little blinds, little hides of, you know, sticks and stones and stuff. And I would hide in there and wait for a deer to walk by. And I thought that was just thrilling. Now, of course, I would once in a while drag a friend out with me and they think it was the most boring thing in the world. So I knew that I was a bit different <laughs> than most kids. Um, and it's that, I guess that, you know, there was the adventure side of it. There was the wildness side of it. And as an adult, I've seen a much more, there, there's a, I don't know if risk and danger is quite the right word, but there, there is certainly an element there that piques the interest of my followers and my fans. You know, how, how on earth are you out there photographing wild wolves and cougars and, and, and grizzly bears? And how are you doing it without being attacked? And so, so to me, there's that element that, uh, the thrill. that, you know, it's kind of a combo of risk and adventure and danger And at the same time, though, I, I love all of these animals. And so for me, a big part of my career has kind of morphed into helping to protect them, which has led to me establishing the Exposed Wildlife Conservancy, which is a nonprofit 
and, and doing a lot of work in that realm. Exactly. And, and, you know, just to kind of underline what you were saying, what we found in our research with, with, with Robert was that purpose-driven entrepreneurs, they, they are, first of all, connected to their passion, but then there is some kind of an expression, an outer expression of that passion, which is connected to a purpose or a higher purpose. And I, you know, when you said you, you started learning um, forestry and initially it, it didn't connect with you because, you know, it was more about doing, maybe it shouldn't say harm, but in, in a way, you know, logging is not necessarily helping to preserve the, the wildlife as, as you were putting it. And then, so you, you connected to this idea of helping to preserve uh, animals and wildlife and, and, and all that. So, so say a little bit more about, because that's kind of your why, that's kind of your purpose. So how did you, how did you figure out that you have something to do about that? Yeah, I think it came about really. I can I can narrow it right down to one story, one moment um, that happened early in my career with Parks Canada, and as I was just starting to take photographs again, um, I, I had actually not didn't have a camera at the time. And when I first arrived in Banff, my very first weekend actually before I started my job with Parks Canada, uh, I, I was staying at the International Hostel in Banff. I had come out for a weekend just a vacation. I had not planned on staying in Banff. And I actually had a job lined up as a forester in British Columbia. And I phoned back on the Sunday to my dad to tell him I was on my way home. And he said, actually, John, on Friday, they called and the funding fell through for your job. And, and you know, a stroke of luck and a bit of privilege for sure. But my dad said, I put $500 in your bank account. Why don't you stay in Banff and see if you can get a job with somebody like Parks Canada and see if you can find something to do with wildlife that's more in your line of interest. And, you know, it's my dad was, my mom and dad were always there supporting me. And it was been very critical in my career. And so I did, I stayed in Banff and, and the very next day in the hostel, I went down to go look for jobs on the job posting board. And the first thing I noticed was a big orange sign from Parks Canada that said, warning, grizzly bear in the area along this particular roadway. And I didn't even look at the jobs. I just went, oh my gosh, there's a grizzly bear. And I, I had never seen a grizzly bear at that point in my life other than on TV. So, you know, 20 years old, I jumped in my little Honda Civic. I raced back up to the hostel, got a couple of clothes, asked a few friends that I just met, do you want to come with me? And I packed my car full of people. There was a guy from Switzerland, two, two kids from Quebec and a kid from New Zealand. And we went down this road and drove back and forth for a couple hours. And right as the sun was going down, we spotted this grizzly bear and her name was Field, we found out later, and watched her for an hour until it got completely dark. And it was just, just us sitting there and it was absolutely beautiful. Um, she had this other big male bear coming in and trying to meet with her. And you know, we were just flabbergasted. It was just, just wonderful. Well, within a, within a week of that happening, uh, Field went into a campground in Banff National Park, was captured by Parks Canada, and was moved north 100 kilometers, so about 60 miles. And uh, within a week, she was back in the campground again. This time, they captured her again, moved her this time 700 kilometers north, almost 400 miles, just over 400 miles. And within a couple of days, she got into an oil and gas camp and was shot and killed. And to me, you know, my whole life, I dreamed about seeing a grizzly bear and I'd finally seen one. 
And within a month of me seeing her, because of humans, she was dead. And that stuck with me my, you know, it stuck with me my entire life. And it has been a, a huge part of what I have tried to do, not only when I worked for Parks Canada, but as my photography career grew, um, trying to get more and more into the messaging side of things and working in the conservation uh, on conservation issues in particular. And so, you know, working with one of your past guests on the show, Julius Strauss, um, together, him and I would go off and, you know, we were two guys living in the bush or living in small towns. And, uh, you know, we're going off to political fundraisers and wearing suits and ties. And, you know, it was way out, way out of my comfort zone, but I, I had to do it for grizzly bears. And uh, so in the end, we ended up getting the grizzly bear hunt shut down in British Columbia. And so it's that kind of thing that I constantly work on now. So I, I definitely am one of those people who puts passion and purpose above profit. You know, I, there are so many ways in my business I could be making more money, but I just prefer to do stuff that I love instead and that, that I care about. And it makes sense. Um, you know, it's as you're saying what you're saying, the next element of the circle of success is, you know, this connection to um, a vision. So, you know, a different state of the world. So, for example, you know, what, what you're saying, you know, today they're hunting grizzly bears or they used to hunt grizzly bears and, and what, what you just described could happen. But now you, you, you were able to change that and, you know, th there's no hunting anymore. So, yeah, if you were to say, you know, what is your vision of this world? Um, you know, what should change in this world through your work? What, what would you say to that? Well, there's there's two key things I think that uh, you know right now. Obviously, everybody knows we're we're dealing with a, a climate change crisis, um, and that one is sort of a, a bit out of where where I deal. You know, it's out of the you know it's, I, I'm dealing more with the wildlife on the ground level and the ecosystems and so on. So it certainly gets impacted by climate change. You know, things like polar bears that I go and photograph. Um, However, for me, the other crisis that is happening in conjunction with climate change is the biodiversity crisis. And that's one that I can really impact, I think, and help educate people on. Um, and so biodiversity is just the variety of life out there, the number of species we have, both uh, plants and animals. And right now we're seeing, you know, we're, we're making animals, we're extirpating them and, and making them extinct at a faster rate than ever before in history. Um, since humans have been on this earth. And so to me, that is a, a, a real crisis that I think I can make a difference in. And so it's a, it, it's a whole circle of trying to change how people view uh, our wild areas and our wildlife and our ecosystems, because biodiversity actually really matters to us. We may not think of it, you know, in your everyday life, you're living in a city or whatever, you may not even think of, well, who cares how many plants and animals are out there? But biodiversity is actually what protects things like our drinking water. Um, it's it's how our wastewater gets treated. You know, you think of stuff, you know, we go to the bathroom and it goes off. Well, how do you think that actually gets cleaned off and gets back into the environment? It's all these little organisms and, and uh, you know, it's, it's a whole system that the more we mess with it, the more there are going to be chinks in it that start breaking and we start to develop these cracks that we can't heal anymore. Um, so. Uh, you know, to me, I see it in little bits and pieces all over the place, you know, things slowly disappearing here and there, tigers and elephants and, you know, all over the world. And here in Canada, um, you know, I see it just with a, a lack of regard sometimes for our wildlife. 
Um, so it, it's just a, a full all-encompassing sort of campaign to just draw awareness to it and start to educate people and get them more interested in it and get them realizing, hey, I should care about this. Um, so, so to me, that's always the question I ask is I got to figure out why should people care? Why should you care if there's grizzly bears out there? Exactly. Yeah. Now, I, I would love to pull our audience and, and, and just, you know, ask them how many times they have heard, if ever they have heard the word uh, biodiversity, because, you know, unfortunately, I know that, for example, our kids, my, my kids, 19 and, and, and 17, you know, they, they, they really not learn about biodiversity, very little about climate change, you know, depending on the, on the teacher's views. So, you know, there's, there's a lot to do there. Okay, so, so you know, as, as we kind of explore the circle of success and your circle of success, so first there's this connection to passion, there, there's a purpose, you know, to, to make a difference. And then there is a vision of, of a world where, you know, people are more aware of uh, these issues and, and they care for species and uh, biodiversity. And then, um, you, you know, the interesting next element of kind of your story is that you have a craft, you have a superpower, which is, you know, how to take pictures. And not only you know how to take pictures, but, you know, thousands of people around the world think that your pictures are very special. And and so, so I'm just wondering, because I also read that you said you haven't actually trained as a photographer, right? Um, so so how did how did you figure out that you have this superpower, that your photos are can be so inspirational? Yeah, that's, a, that's a great question. It was definitely a, a gradual process. Right. Um, so I, I'll tell you a bit about how my career, you know, I've, I've kind of told you how I got into photography, but how did I actually make it into a living? Right. Um, because that plays a role in the story. Um, so when I first started in photography, which was kind of 1994, where I started taking pictures seriously, I got my mom's old Pentax ME Super and a couple of Vivitar lenses. And this was all old school, big, heavy metal camera stuff and lenses. And I went out and I was taking photographs. And I remember coming back with, you know, slide film. So I came back into the Parks Canada office one day and I was so proud of these photographs I'd taken of these bighorn sheep rams with the big horns and the curls. And uh, I had them out on this light table, this, you know, for, for anybody that can remember back that far to when, you know, just long before we were using computers for photography. And uh, one of the media people from Parks Canada came in. I said, oh, you got to come look at these. And he came in and he looked and kind of just shrugged. And he said, yeah, they're okay. And I went, what do you mean? Like, I thought they were awesome. And, and he started pointing out all these things. Well, you know, this is, blah, you know, this isn't great. And you got the animal dead center here and stuff. And I... I started to think, okay, geez. And that was a, a, a moment of modesty and humility. And I, I, I like to think that that has kind of stuck with me through all the years. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of get caught up as, as people think that you're a great photographer and so on and get caught up in your own hype. And I try not to do that. But uh, it, shortly after that, I made my first sale. And it was to Canadian Geographic Magazine, which at the time was the biggest magazine in Canada. And I just thought, oh boy, here we go. I'm going to become a professional wildlife photographer. And I went down to the bank and I opened a bank account and I started my company name. And, yeah. you know, I just thought, oh, the money's just going to start flowing in. The sales will just start coming. Well, that Canadian Geographic sale was for $600. And in that first year, I made $717 total. 
Wow. Right. So I made another $117 in the entire year. So it was another moment of humility. I was like, oh my gosh, like I don't have a clue what I'm doing here. <laughs> Either I'm a terrible photographer or I don't know what I'm doing in business. So I had to address both of those. And it took me four years then working part-time jobs and doing all sorts of stuff and trying to grow my portfolio and trying to figure out what would work business-wise. And I had my, my early niche was that I designed a website for myself in 1996. That was my final job with Parks Canada, was designing websites for the eight national parks in Western Canada, the very first websites that existed for them. And so I used those skills and designed my own website. And it gave me an in that other professional photographers didn't have at the time. And so by the year 2000, I was able to turn full-time pro. Even then, I, the first couple of years, I struggled mightily. Like there were several times where I thought I was going to have to quit or sell my car or do things like that. And I, I was very fortunate. Again, I had a couple of times where my mom and dad loaned me money for my rent. So that's how dire things had gotten. You know, I couldn't even pay my own rent. Um, you know, I couldn't. I, I was always deciding between going and buying food or do I buy another tank of gas so I can go look for animals. Um, my my big break business wise came in two thousand and two, when I did a bunch of research and I decided to do my first product and I did a line of greeting cards, and it wasn't much. It 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 probably put fifteen thousand dollars extra a year into my pockets. But it was enough to go from being scraping the bottom of the barrel to being, okay, I'm, I'm finally like making enough now. I can start looking at other projects and other products. And that's when I started to, started doing books and, you know, sort of growing my business um, um, that manner so that I finally got into a comfortable level of, of living. And I think, you know, the, the things that you're saying, they're, they're so important because, you know, there's so many people. Uh, walking around with a lot of passion, they have an amazing vision, but they don't have a product, right? Like as as you as you said, they are not clear on who are the customers. And if you're not clear on that, and 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 not clear on your superpower or talent, you know, it, it's just never going to move anywhere because you're out of balance. You're all soul, and there's no 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 clarity on a product, a solution, and and differentiation. If you were, by the way, to say what is the signature style of your photography that, that is different uh, from others? What, how would you, I know it's art, so it's kind of hard to describe, but I'm, I'm sure you have a, a thought or two on that. Yeah. My style is um, draw, drawing emotion out of people. So, um, but in a, a, a sort of direct manner. So many wildlife photographers, particularly ones that are, you know, what you would call award-winning or top, top of the line can be quite artsy in how they photograph. And so that's what catches the eye of judges and competitions and things like that. I'm not so much, I'm not so much of an artsy wildlife photographer. I'm more of a direct, so a, a wolf staring right at you, um, a grizzly bear, a more intimate where, you know, you're looking at it and you almost think, what is, what's that animal thinking? Or, wow, how did he get that photograph? How did he get that close? Or, you know, various sort of types of things that I'm trying to draw out an emotion or a connection between you and the animal. So it's not so much the animal hidden off on the side of the photograph where you're picking it out. Mine are usually much more direct or a, you know, a mother and a cub in an intimate moment, um, things like that. So not so much ones that are going to win competitions, although I have, have done well in, in some big international competitions before. 
um, but more ones that that resonate on places like social media, um, where you know you're scrolling through quickly on a phone, and all of a sudden, oh geez, what's that? And you go back and you're like, oh wow, look at that wolf. Um, so that's the kind of thing that I'm I think I'm most known for, you know, the the big bold cover photo or or stuff like that. And it really connects and ties in with your purpose, if I may observe, because you know, for us to really care about abstract concepts like climate change, uh, biodiversity. I mean, the, the only way is to is if we have a connection to animals and nature. If we don't feel emotionally connected to those spe species, we're just focused on our little life, you know, in, in our little house, in our little city. But I think building the connection really makes sense. By, by the way, behind you, uh, the listeners are not seeing that, but I, I see a photo. Is that a cougar? Or yes, that's a, a cougar or a mountain lion, as they're called in the U.S. Right, exactly. And 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 it's looking at me in in a, in a way. It's like, hey, Mickey, what what, what you doing down there? So so, so I, I I do immediately feel that connection. It's like you know, this animal is definitely looking at me. <laughs> so yes, yeah, that was a, a a pretty cool project that I did last January. So January 2021, right in the middle of the pandemic. Although we still seem to be in the middle of the pandemic. Um, But uh, I um, had a month at home with my wife and son uh, were, were with my parents-in-law in Mexico, um, sort of avoiding the, the main pandemic in North America, or at least in the U.S. and Canada. And so I was on my own. And so for an entire month from January 1st to January 31st last year, I went out from dawn to dusk tracking cougars or mountain lions or pumas, whatever you want to call them. Um, the biggest wild cat that's found in Canada and the U.S. Um, and uh, I knew it was going to be a really difficult project. Um, I was dealing with, you know, extreme cold. It got as low as, uh, during my project, got as low as minus 26 degrees Celsius, so which is about minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, I had all kinds of blowing snow. I had to walk across frozen rivers. Um, you know, I was I was trying to track down naturally and find a mountain lion and the picture that you're referring to was on day 13 i got very lucky and i found a mother cougar with her kitten that were eating a, a deer that they had killed and i was fortunate to spend two days with them uh, and it was easily one of the highlights of my career uh getting to spend you know th this time with maybe about 100 meters 100 yards away from them and and literally be in their world for two full days where I just sat there and they played and they slept and they ate and they looked at me, you know, the, the curiosity killed the cat. They would come and they would circle around me and look at me. And so that photo is, is the mother cougar peering over and looking at me to see what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. I was going to actually ask you, so, so they were absolutely aware of your presence and they saw you. So it's not like you're taking these photos from a distance where they have no idea that you were there. You're actually engaging with them in a way. Yeah, try you know trying not to be the focus. Of, I don't. I don't. I try to you know when you're photographing, you don't want the animal paying full attention to you all the time. Otherwise, it's not acting naturally and it's not doing the behavior that you want to photograph and capture those moments. Um, so in this particular case, you know sometimes I had to wait an hour for the cougar to even look at me. Um, so that to me is a successful encounter where the cougar is just doing its thing, and you know every once in a while peers over to see what I'm doing and I snap my shots. Uh, or I snap my shots while it's, you know, cleaning its kitten or it's chewing on a rib bone. Um, so 
but but yeah, there are certain species I photograph where I absolutely want them to be aware that I'm there. So cougars and grizzly bears, you know, grizzly bears, you don't want to be sneaking up on a grizzly bear and have it suddenly discover there's a human there. Um, other species that I photograph, sometimes I do hide in a blind or a hide, like wolves, for instance, if I'm on foot, if they see me, they run away. So I have to be do everything in my power to not let them see me, smell me, hear me. Uh, you know, I've, I've got to have my senses be better than theirs, which is very, very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, just so that we bust some myths here. You know, why is it that we are so afraid of mountain lions and grizzly bears? I mean, I remember when I was um, spending time in, uh, in Santa Cruz and studying in, 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 in the university there, you know, th th there were these signs, you know, like, don't go out into the forest, don't go running. There are mountain lions. They're extremely dangerous. And I was, you know, so, so nobody went running up, up in this amazing place, which is the, probably the best runs I have ever had in my life up in the redwood forest. And I would always go up and I, and I wasn't afraid. Maybe I was foolish. But so where, why do we think that meeting a cougar is going to result in, in an injury? I think it's, you know, it takes us back to the, if you think of your, everyone's childhood or teen years, at some point you watched a movie where someone walked down a dark alley and something bad happened. Right. And so we all have that innate fear of walking down a dark alley by ourselves now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it, you know, so we've all seen the stories, you know, we all watched Jaws as kids and saw the shark come up out of nowhere and, and do the attacks. And so even though it is extraordinarily rare, there's that fear built into us. And, you know, I think over time, person like me, you know, I, I live in a community where right now from my house, if I walk one kilometer, so not even a mile from my house, I can see a cougar, a wolf, a grizzly bear, a wolverine, you know, all these animals that could do damage to me. Yet I, I've realized that, you know, for me, the most dangerous part is crossing the street three times to get up there. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, so the, you know, the, the chance of something actually happening with one of these animals is so remote. Um, you know, and I, I, I'm willing to take that chance. I want to be out in nature and I want to be connecting uh, with nature and connecting with these animals. So, you know, it's amazing as, as a, a 21 year full-time professional and, you know, it's been going on 27 years now that I've been photographing all these big predators. And that's kind of what I'm known for is the wolf photos and the cougars and the grizzly bears and so on. I haven't had one single aggressive encounter despite the fact I search out these animals and I spend considerable amounts of time with them. And I think that's a really key point to make to people is, you know, if you're prepared and you, you assess the risks properly, you know, if there's an area closed because a cougar went in and, and was being following somebody, well, maybe don't go for a run there. But if you're, there's just an area where there are cougars, which is all over California, all over Utah, Montana, Wyoming, Alberta, British Columbia, uh, Chile, Mexico, you know, well, go out and do your run, go do your mountain bike, um, go do your hike, you know, carry a, a, a can of pepper spray if you want to, just as an extra layer of security, but don't be afraid to be out there. You know, that's, that's the fun part is being out there and having that, you know, if, if you want to just go for a hike where there's nothing to, to see, then you, you know, go off to parts of the Alps in Europe where, uh, where, the, you know, there's no predators left. Uh, although thankfully, you know, even there, they're starting to come back. So, uh, It's, it's amazing. I mean, every time I speak to someone who is a professional 
uh, wildlife guy, you know, in, in some shape or form, they all say the same. They never had a single encounter which they actually considered dangerous physically. So, yeah, there, there's probably a big point there that we're so disconnected from nature that, you know, all we remember is Jaws. Um, yeah, so... <laughs> Now, just to just to get back to the circle of success a little bit, because I think it's really coming together. So, you know, there's the passion, there's the purpose, there's the vision, then there's the discovery of the superpower with the photography. And then there is also this sense that, you know, I want to build a business out of that, as you mentioned, you know, and, and um, you, you know, we, we, we like to say that, you know, there's the ego and the soul and the soul is all, all the, you know, the ideas of the purpose and, and, and the vision. But then there's the ego and, and, and the ego is not necessarily bad. So, so wanting to build a business, a successful business is not a bad thing. It's a great thing to do. So I, I was just wondering about your ambition. Did you have the ambition to, to become a top photographer so did you ever think that you know i, I want to be the best or how, how did you set your goals and ambitions around this business when i first started out i just wanted to turn it i was just like how do i spend all of my time in the outdoors <laughs> so i was looking for a job that i could do that and and the photography once i started doing the photography i was like oh my gosh this is what i want to do i want to become a professional wildlife photographer and I actually remember the first time I told my parents that, and it was before I'd ever made a sale or anything. And, you know, instead of trying to talk me out of it, again, it was a moment where I remember it vividly because my parents just kind of went, well, okay, you know, give it a shot and see see what happens. And, you know, they weren't negative at all. And I, I didn't really have a clue of how hard it was going to be, uh, you know, how many years and and how I would have to kind of train myself in the business side of things. Cause I, I remember fairly early on another photographer gave me a book uh, about the business of photography and I read it from cover to cover. And right when you first opened it, there was a quote and I don't remember the exact wording, but it, to paraphrase it, it was, you can be the best photographer in the world, but if you don't know anything about business, you're never going to be a professional photographer. And the flip side of the quote was, you can be the worst photographer in the world, but if you're great at business, you'll do just fine. Um, and so I, I took that to heart. And I, I think I had a real desire. I like the business side and I still do. Um, you know, I still do my my books, for instance, in, in Excel. You know, I still, I don't use other programs. I design my own stuff and do my own spreadsheets. And, you know, so I still enjoy that kind of thing, which is, I think, a bit weird for a professional photographer. Um, I still like the business side. I early on just wanted to be a pro. Then there was a period where I wanted to be the best pro. And I think I had a period where, you know, I wanted to go off and do National Geographic assignments and things like that. But I lost that fairly quickly where I decided I don't want to necessarily be the best I want to inspire people and I want to, because I remember early in my career going and doing talks and having little kids come up to me and it, the very first time it happened to me, it took me back to a moment when I was a kid and I was camping with my family and we went and saw a talk from a, a professional wildlife photographer called Johnny Johnson. He was an, an Alaskan guy. This was like in the 1970s. And I just remember thinking, oh, my gosh, that is the coolest job ever. And 
thinking, well, he inspired me and now look what I'm doing. And now these kids are coming up to me. So I have this power to inspire them. And I've always kind of said with my career, I may not be the one that actually changes things, but I might inspire the kid who does. And, and that's worth it to me to keep doing what I'm doing. I love it. So that's exactly the, the kind of ego and soul um, balance that, you know, uh, I was referring to so that, you know, you do have a clear idea of your vision and your mission and your purpose, but you also have an ambition to become, you know, the best or the most inspiring one. So, so that's, that's clearly an ambition. And then, you know, it keeps you going. And, you know, the, the last area of the circle of success is actually a role, which is basically this idea of who do you need to be as a, as a, as a person? Um, what sort of role do you need to play in order to make it happen, your ambition and your vision? Um, so, and, and, you know, part of that is also who do you need to partner with? So I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering about both of those questions. Uh, so one question is, what did you realize? Who do you need to become as a, photo as a photographer in order to make that happen, in order to inspire, in order to, uh, you know, help the world think about issues like biodiversity? I realized I had to become a photographer that that people would look up to. So from, uh, you know, not only making good photographs, but I had to be ethical and as moral as possible and have a real clear direction. Um, so not going off and, you know, there, there are wildlife photographers that go and photograph at game farms, uh, which are animals that live in cages. They're basically trained models. Um, so for instance, with cougars and pumas, a lot of the photographs you see of mountain lions are actually from game farms. They're not wild animals that, that somebody tracked down like I did. Um, so it's a completely different side of wildlife photography. So I knew I had to stay on what, what I'll call the straight and narrow. And it doesn't mean you don't make mistakes, but I, I had a, a standard in my own mind that I needed to live up to that people could then look up to me. And I think in the same vein, I knew I had to be um, recognizable. So uh, I had to have books out there. I had to have a social media presence um, so that people came to me and said, well, you know, where do I look up your work? Where do I learn more? It was so easy for me to point them in a direction of, you know, here's my website, here's my Instagram, here's my Facebook, here's my books. So there was a, a really broad rounded portfolio. So I had this, um, you know, not only are people looking up to me for a, a certain standard, but they're like, you know, he's established. This is the guy that that we can we can look up to both on a professional level and an ethical, moral level. Um, and, and we can look to for direction on what we might want to do for conservation. And so that also helps then with who I partner with. And so I, particularly the last five to 10 years, have partnered tremendously with nonprofit environmental organizations that are doing advocacy for wildlife and for ecosystems um, all over North America, um, ranging from organizations in Mexico uh, to, to um, organizations in the States. And then of course, a lot of them in Canada, and which has led to me starting my own organization that I mentioned earlier, uh, the Wildlife Conservancy. And so um, I try to work on, on all sorts of different issues and, and help as much as I can these organizations with storytelling, with imagery, um, with video, so that they can get their advocacy even more broad on social media and they can 
um, help fundraise even more and and sort of the, that whole gamut of of things that just helps in the conservation realm. Right. Yeah, that that's really awesome. And, and you know, it sort of illustrates the point that in order for somebody to to be able to partner up with the right people, you have to be very clear on your values, on your contribution, and then sort of provide that. And, and I'm sure that those other partners, they also provide something that sort of helps you to multiplicate or, you know, multiply your, your influence on, 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 on a higher and higher level. Um, one last question regarding this idea of the circle of success, because we've explored passion, vision, mission, purpose, ambition, role a little bit. Um, do you have a team? And you kind of refer to it, but did you build a team around yourself? How does it work for you now in your business? So so this was a decision that I made fairly early on, and I don't really have a team around me for the photography side of things. I've For brief periods of time, I've had employees that have worked part-time for me. And I've always kind of looked at it that, you know, if I want to make more money, I would bring in employees, but I'm I'm such a, for lack of a better word, control freak. I like I you know, said, I like doing my own spreadsheets and my own books and things like that. And so I've just in the end decided, you know what, I'm comfortable with how much I make and and how I'm making it. So why rock the boat? I'm, you know, I'm pretty happy where I am right now. Now, where I do have a team um, is on the conservation side of things. So in my conservancy, I'm a full-time volunteer with the Conservancy, and uh, I'm the, the vice president of it. And the president is also a full-time volunteer. It's a really good friend of mine. And then we have employees in the Conservancy that are part of our team, as well as other volunteers. And then I consider um, the partners that I work with in other organizations, so someone like Julius, uh, Julius Strauss, to, to also be a partner of sorts with me. You know, I when I have conservation ideas, I need to bounce off somebody. I phone up Julius and it doesn't matter if he's in Hungary or Russia or in the middle of the woods in British Columbia. Um, we connect on a call and I bounce my ideas off him and he bounces his ideas off me. And so he's part of my team, although in a much more indirect fashion. Right. No, it, it makes perfect sense. And, you know, it's you're pointing to something that's very important, that once you're clear on your ambition, which is essentially also how much money you, you want to make and how important that is to you, that sort of determines whether you need, what kind of a team you need and whether you need a team. So so often what happens to entrepreneurs is that they are not clear on that. So they they, they start, in, they build a, a huge team around themselves or an organization, and then they kind of like, why did I do this? I don't like this. So so I love that you're sort of clear that, no, I don't, I don't want that. <laughs> yeah, like they're... Yeah. Great. So, so moving on, you know, you're, you're a photographer and you are a mission driven entrepreneur. And, and, and thank you for sharing what you shared with us so far. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you're also a man, you're a father, you're a spouse, you're a friend. You know, what have you learned from the animals, you know, especially these animals, you know, the cougars, the, the grizzly bears, um, the whales, you know, these sort of, we think dangerous animals, but it looks like they're not as dangerous as we think. So what have you learned from them that, you know, made you a better father or a better friend? What, 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 is, what are the animals teaching you? You know, they, there's a lot of things that animals have surprised me with over the years. I, 
I think probably going in, maybe I had a fanciful notion that animals felt emotion and, and displayed emotion and stuff, but they really do. Um, you know, and it, we can see that in our own dogs and cats and stuff. And in the wild, it's no different. And when you get to to sit there, like watching that mother cougar with her her kitten and watching what what cannot be described as anything else but love and protection and and caring. And it makes you realize that, you know, sometimes we as humans get very, very disconnected from that whole thing. And all we care about is ourselves. And I think early in my career, I was probably a lot like that. You know, I may still display bits of that. Um, I, I like to think I don't as much anymore, that I'm much more tuned into to, you know, caring about other people. And, and I think it's made me, definitely made me a better father. I'm a father quite late in life. Um, you know, didn't have my son till I'm 49, um, 52 now. So he's a three-year-old. And, you know, yet at the same time, I, I can't even imagine now having a, a, a child any younger. Like, I'm not even sure I was ready for it. Like, I think being a wildlife photographer and getting into all these conservation issues and stuff has prepared me much better for really appreciating what's important in life. And if I'd had a child when I was 30, I, you know, lots of people are prepared for that. I don't think I would have been. I don't think I would have done nearly as good a job as I hope I am doing right now. Although I might get arguments from my wife on that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but that, that's, that's really, I think, very important. So this idea that, you know, they do display emotions and, and you know, in a very pure form. And, you know, how, how interesting it is that we think that our dogs and cats, they do feel, but we think, you know, a grizzly bear or a cougar doesn't, like, it doesn't make any sense, but yet, you know, we have sort of built that notion. You know, this kind of also leads me to the uh, other question I wanted to ask you about, you know, this podcast is, is to inspire men and entrepreneurs and people not to compartmentalize their life and, you know, dare to connect to their passion. And, you know, I, I hope they got some really good inspiration from you. But I want to ask you, so, so what's a modern man like to you? Just curious. Yeah, to, I think that it's very split right now. Um, you know, I see the worst side of things on social media, of course, but also in my job, seeing wildlife photographers that do anything to get the shot. Doesn't matter about the welfare of the animal. Doesn't matter if there's trespassing on someone's private land. Doesn't matter, you know, what the impact they might be having is. And I also see it even worse in some of the, the the sort of the worst side of the trappers and the hunters, the, the trophy hunters, the and this is a very small percentage. So, you know, I want to be very careful not to lump all hunters, for instance, in with this, because most hunters are really great. Um, but people that are out there just killing things. Um, and, and so that's kind of, to me, the absolute worst side where they're completely disconnected. They think they're out there. They think they're in nature. They think they're connecting to it. And all they're doing is killing and driving around in ATVs and damaging things. And then the flip side for me, the, the masculinity of myself um, has changed so much over the years. And now I sort of see, you know, a real man as being someone who not only cares about nature and cares about other humans, but cares about some of the big picture issues, the climate change, the biodiversity, the you know, maybe biodiversity, maybe be if you live in a city, it's not that you're not that connected to it. 
So maybe it's climate change, maybe it's just caring for other humans. Um, so the Me Too movement, the um, Black Lives Matter movement, all of these different things that have come to the forefront in recent years that to me, I've just tried to educate myself on them. And I, I think that is a big part of being a man nowadays is just opening your mind a little bit and not just being stuck in your old ways. And I certainly was guilty of that in the past. And I like to think that now I'm opening my mind much more to, to different issues and to seeing other people's viewpoints. And so not just in the conservation and wildlife realm, but, but you know, throughout my life, um, trying to, to just be a better person overall. Um, and, and so I think there's a, a bit of feminism now in masculinity. Um, there's, there's, uh, you know, I'll give you a, a really good example, um, that has got nothing to do with wildlife, but I used to always walk by homeless people and not even look at them, you know, ignore them. And I was on a trip to Spain visiting my, my brother-in-law and my brother-in-law and his wife at the time stopped at every single homeless person and either gave them a little bit of change, talked to them for a minute. And I would always just keep walking and, and wait for them, you know, 20 meters, 20 yards down the road or down the sidewalk and then say, oh, what, what were you doing? And it wasn't until years later, like this happened like 10 years ago. And it wasn't until just a year or two ago that I started thinking like, why am I not doing that? Why? It took a long time for it to click in and me to go, well, that, you know, they, that's even if I just stop and say a couple words to them, pet their dog or, you know, just some kind of compassion and caring. And so that's just a, a little minor step in my own life that I've tried to start taking. Um, and so I think if people out there, men out there can just slowly start to, you know, just like me, you slowly step by step, start to open up your mind a bit. And I think to me, that's masculinity is realizing we're not the big tough guys. Well, I'm certainly not, but, uh, but the, you know, the, how you're raised initially or how many of us were raised is, you know, men don't cry, men don't show compassion for for certain things you know you're not empathetic to certain things you know don't just get over it you'll you know you'll tough it out you know all the cliches and i think to be successful nowadays as an entrepreneur a lot of it is is looking outside of the box a bit and going well no maybe i don't need to tough it out maybe i don't need five extra employees maybe i you know can can just do it this way and and plan outside the box a bit and have a bit smaller business than I thought, or, or the opposite side of things that maybe I should just jump right in. You know, it's my passion. Maybe I should give it a go. At least I'd say I tried them. And, you know, I, I, what I really loved in, in your description of, of your circle of success was sort of that, you know, you, you always had that compass, you know, like there, there is a purpose, there is some clarity of what, what are the things that you're trying to change. You are also connected to something that you really love doing and being out there. So you will not give up, right? Like it will help you to make the right decisions. Whereas if you're not clear on those things, it's very hard to make those decisions because why not make some more money? Why not add like, and there's nothing wrong necessarily uh, with making more money. But, but I think the key is this consistency between the values and the purpose and, and the actions and remaining connected to the passion. So yeah. 
Um, yeah, I think I, I would definitely, there's, there's nothing in me that says, oh, geez, I wouldn't like to make more money. But I have realized now at this point, for me to make more money, I have to work harder. And I don't necessarily want to work harder on that side of my business at this point. I would rather be working on conservation issues and storytelling and, you know, things like that. I'm still going to keep doing new books and, and stuff that keeps the business going. But it's not the primary passion anymore. As long as I keep my income at the level I'm at, I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. So you, your your purpose keeps you grounded and your clarity on your ambition also, you know, tells you what to do. And, you know, when, when you said compassion, you know, I just said it's I mean, I, I just thought that it's very hard to feel compassion if you're disconnected from your own emotions. Right. So, so I think for man, for modern man, you know, the first step is is to be able to connect to your own emotions. And and when you're connected to your body and your emotions, that's when that's when I have the chance to even connect and pick up your emotions. And then, you know, then we connect. But if I'm disconnected, it's, it's impossible. Hmm. Totally agree. <laughs> All right. Um, so, you know, maybe as a, as a, as a closing question, um, what's your suggestion uh, to parents uh, out there who are, you know, trying to raise um, sons and daughters and, and, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you think that, okay, I'm a conscious person. I know about biodiversity. I know about climate change. I care, but I'm alone. You know, I, I just meet with similar people, but like, how do we, how do we change that? We don't just talk to each other. So, you know, not just the conscious folks, hanging out together and talking stuff, but like, how do we get this message out to a larger audience? That is a great question. I think um, there's a couple of different ways. Um, one, I think it needs to go into schools. And, and thankfully, I know a lot of nonprofits right now that are working uh, very specifically on school curriculum type stuff um, to to teach a little bit more about connecting to nature in schools. But then the other key for me, and I think this is, you know, as a parent speaking to other parents, you know, maybe you live in a city, maybe, you know, you're, you're not easily connected to nature. For me, the thing as a child that really did connect me to nature was not necessarily watching nature shows or reading books, although those were great. It was actually going out on a camping trip or on fishing trips or on things where I was out there. And I, you know, I'll be honest, I don't even necessarily remember if I, I really enjoyed all of them at the time, but they all stuck with me for different reasons, all those little trips. And so if people can even just get out on a hike with your family, with your kids and, and get them out in nature and, and try once in a while to, to maybe not go on a hike that's got a thousand other people on it, um, you know, try and pick somewhere that's, got fewer people and where you can just be off and, you know, whether you're hiking through the cactus or whether you're hiking in the mountains through the pine trees, it doesn't really matter. Um, just being out there and trying to develop that connection and don't be too upset if it doesn't happen right away with your kids. Like it, uh, you know, I know lots of kids who don't really connect early on, but then later on it seems to click. And, uh, so, so th I think that's really important as the more, children we get connected to nature in one way or another the more it's going to help 20 30 40 years down the road 
Um, so I think that's a really big thing that parents can do and educators can help do. Yeah, love it. Yeah, it's like, to me, what, what I'm hearing is, is, is exposure, right? Like if, if yeah. I'm never exposed to it, if I'm not immersed in it, how the hell am I supposed to feel connected to it? It's like, right. yeah. Yeah, so going going in and and taking the trails that are less less traveled. Well, John, thank you so much for being here. Uh, it was great to talk to you, and keep up the good work. Uh, I'm I'm a I'm a big fan. And um, where can people connect to you um, if if they want to see more of your work? So the easiest things are if they just go and Google John E. Marriott. So Marriott is spelled like the hotel, and E is my middle initial. And uh, they'll find my websites and my tour company and my Instagram and Facebook and the uh, Exposed Wildlife Conservancy links. Um, so that's probably the simplest of all. Uh, I'm on most of the major social media platforms and stuff. So, yeah, thank you very much for having me, Mickey. It was a real pleasure to be on here. Thank you. Um, one last question I, I can't resist. Is there a new project you're working on and, and you can already sort of hint about it? Any any book? Yeah, there's two actually. So that I just finished wrapping up a new wolf book, uh, which will be coming out in March or April of this year. So it goes to print uh, January 12th. So um, a couple of days. We're we're uh, doing this recording on January 6th. So uh, less than a week from now, it goes to print, um, and it'll be available, like I said, in March or April, all over all the usual places, bookstores, online book retailers, Amazon, all that kind of stuff. Um, as well as my website, if you'd like a signed copy. Um, and then the other big project that I'm working on with my conservancy um, in partnership with a nonprofit called the Fur Bearers is we're doing a big nationwide campaign up here in Canada. Uh, we're producing a documentary about snaring, um, which is actually a type of trapping that occurs in Canada and the U.S. where they use a wire loop and the animal, like a wolf, will walk through it and catch their neck on this wire loop and then choke to death. And it's a very inhumane way of dying um, for, for a wild animal. And so we're working to get the regulations changed up here in Canada um, so that snaring uh, is no longer part of the repertoire of a trapper um, because it is the single most inhumane way of killing animals right now, uh, basically that's left <laughs> up here in Canada. So we're, we're trying to change that. So it's an animal welfare issue. I hope you succeed. Good luck with it. And thank you very much again for being here. Thank you, Mickey. Thank you so much again for listening to the show. I hope you had a good time and you come back to us. Please don't forget to subscribe. And don't forget to give us a good rating. If you're interested in some individual coaching, check out www.mantorshift.com. Mentorshift.com. And also don't forget to get your mindset map at www.mindsetmaps.com. So it's www.mindsetmaps.com. And I hope to connect with you virtually pretty soon again. Bye for now.